Brought to you with some announcements before we get into this week's episode. As part of this episode, Manning has offered a permanent 40% discount code, good for their products in all formats. For the listeners of the podcast, use code PODGEEKERY20 for your 40% discount. Elmkoff is going virtual. Elmkoff returns July 15th to the 17th for three days of talks, workshops, and open spaces. Everyone is welcome. Join them from the comfort of your own home. Their call for proposals is now open through June 1st. In addition to 25-minute talks, this year they're soliciting proposals for two- and four-hour workshops and open spaces. Time for discussions and hacking modding. Early bird tickets are now available as well, and the price will go up once they announce speakers. So get in now for the early bird price. And find out more at 2020.elm-conf.com. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to show support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to show your support, you'll find out more at www.patreon.com slash fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you'd leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. If there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Russ Proctor, and this week us, we have Ivan Tukic. I'm sure I butchered that name, but Ivan, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Hi, all. Thank you for inviting me to the podcast. I'm let's say a geek. I was a geek from my really, really young age, elementary school or a little bit before that. I started programming, let's say around, I don't know how old I was, but let's say 12 years or maybe even younger. I'm not sure. It was a really long time ago. And obviously I started with the languages that are not going to be mentioned here with Commodore 64 and similar. And then I moved on to a little bit more serious languages like C, Pascal, and C++. And after that, I started doing a lot of different stuff and I fell in love with functional programming. So eventually I moved on to mixing C++ with some functional programming concepts I've seen in other languages. And you've got the book out, Functional Programming in C++. And as we mentioned in the call, I've done... C++ in my background, enough that I can kind of go back and read it, but haven't really done some stuff and was following along just hearing other people talk about C++ and that it was getting lambdas and map and reduce and everything. And about six years ago, saw enough that it was there and got to read some of it. So I've been kind of excited to see how C++ adoption and functional C++ is working, given the giant existing C++ ecosystem that's already out there. So this should be an interesting conversation, because I'm curious as to what that is. But I guess we'll take a step back. You talked about a little bit about your background, and with your C, Pascal, C++, when you started doing serious programs. But what got you into the functional aspect and first exposures, and how did you come across functional programming, and what was that story like? So uh, it was kind of by accident. We were taught Lisp at the university, and we all really hated Lisp, as people usually do, right? So we were forced to 
to study Lisp just for the part of the course. So it wasn't really fruitful to spend that much time on the function programming idiom. The only thing that we've learned was how to simulate C constructs in Lisp. So most of the code just ended up being completely imperative, for loops, etc., simulated in Lisp. And it was obviously really bad. But at some point, I had to work in Java, unfortunately, and they released a new, beautiful new version of Java that had a for each loop. And then I realized that, okay, but I was able to implement the for each loop in Lisp without any support from the compiler. So why is this touted as a big new thing? And then I realized that, okay, well, maybe I should go back a little bit to functional programming. Obviously not Lisp. But I went to Haskell and saw the beautiful simplicity of the ideas behind the language and the power that they can express. And after that, it was just, let's say, downhill for me as an object-oriented programmer. What was that Haskell experience like? Because I've had guests on here in the past that talk about a Haskell deflector shield, that if you don't hit it at the right angle, you bounce off and you have to take another shot to come back in and uh, make another attempt at Haskell. So what was it about Haskell that started to appeal to you that it sounds like you were able to hit that relatively straightforward and get the ideas and see the beauty and the appeal of Haskell when a lot of people are like, yes, there's something there. I still don't understand enough of it to see what is there. So it's going to take a couple times. So what was that, do you think, that appealed to you and any guesses to why you were able to see it pretty straightforwardly, if that is in fact true? I have no idea. I think the main point was that I wrote much less code than I used to. And I know that this is a sentence that everybody says. So when everybody thinks about function programming, oh, it's good because in multi-threaded and it's shorter to write. And I really hate saying this, but it's it, the worst part is that it's true. I even saw a project uh, somewhere online. It was written in Java, and they had the official annotations whenever the developer got annoyed for the number of lines he wrote. He annotated the COVID could have been one line in Haskell. And I have no idea why, but I found it really natural to think about stuff not in the terms of recursion or in the terms of for loops, etc., but in the terms of filter map and, and other higher order I'm not going to say functions, higher their abstractions. <laughs> Thinking in the map filter do seems to be a catch for some people. So it sounds like it, since you said it was fairly straightforward, if you're also jumping back from Java some, it sounds like the types and the strong type system weren't necessarily completely foreign to you, even though Java isn't nearly as strong as Haskell. Was that something that you were already thinking in terms of types and had slowly made that evolution as well? Because some people go further and that stuff with object-oriented before they get to the Haskell-type thinking. Java has an abysmal-type system. Fortunately enough, C++, when you exclude the C layer, C++ is really strongly typed. So I didn't see that as a huge of a deal in Haskell because I kind of got used to it in C++. The only difference was let's say, the limitations of Haskell that you could do in C++ and vice versa. So, for example, I don't know, function overloading and stuff. In C++, it's trivial. 
And then on the other hand, in Haskell, generic programming was much more pleasant than in C++ until C++20. So you go down the Haskell route. How long were you doing Haskell? Was that a learning it, going through, practicing it for a number of years, and it just made sense and you're continuing to go deeper? Or was that just a quick bounce off and started to run back and take these ideas from Haskell back to Java, back to C++ as fast as you could? Or was there still kind of a constant digging into Haskell in the background? So just to make it clear, I never returned to Java. <laughs> so when people tried to force me to write Java, I wrote Scala code and pretended it was Java. So they didn't see the difference. With regards to C++, the problem is that I learned programming by writing normal software that I need that somebody else needs. With Haskell, that's a huge, huge issue because there are not as many Haskell projects that I use on a daily basis. So I never found a project that I could contribute regularly to. So most of my Haskell work was when I don't want to write a shell script, I write a Haskell shell script. And sometimes they grew a little bit more than being just a shell script. I even wrote uh, a build system for C++ in Haskell at some point. And the problem is that I don't really have a need to actively develop anything in Haskell. So every once in a while, half a year, six months or a year, I return to a project that I previously worked on. And then I need to relearn most of the Haskell syntax that I've forgotten. Obviously, the concepts are still the same, but the syntax is something that you really easily forget if you don't work every day on it. So Haskell is, let's say, always the background noise in my life. The main, the main music is C++ and Haskell is just somewhere out there just influencing me from the side. And you said you managed to sneak in some Scala because you've never actually written Java. I took that as, when you said you were looking at the Java in the 4 h I thought you were actually writing Java, but I think it's even more interesting the fact that you were able to get some Scala in there. I did write Java originally. I never returned to it ah. after going to Haskell and Scala. In essence, we had some international project. And during the discussions about which languages and which platforms are going to be used, Obviously, some part was about .NET, some people wanted Java, etc. And I was, I was somehow able to force, let's say, the Java environment on everybody, but not specifically to mention Java. The official document said JVM, <laughs> because I planned in advance what I wanted to do with it. So I went with Scala and Dhaka and stuff. How did you find the Scala and Aka? And when you're introducing this back, I'm sure if you're coming from Haskell, from what I've heard with Scala is there's the, it's a better Java and more aligns with like mm -hmm. a Groovy. And then there's the, we're going to take this as a worse Haskell that can kind of run on the JVM. It sounds like if you're coming back from the Haskell, you're probably trying to lean towards that side of it's a worse Haskell than a better Java. How did the adoption go for that when you're trying to introduce this back as you're trying to and I want to see how this works, and I'll compare it later when we start talking about the applying it and introducing it to C++, but just I'm assuming this was also one of those first times of getting exposure for trying to bring other people on board. So how did that go when you're trying to advocate and spread these ideas? So it was interesting. I tried to, to explain to people all the things that I liked 
in functional programming. And obviously, it was mostly shorter code. <laughs> and when yeah, Java is concerned, yeah, type safety as well. So in Scala, even if it's built on JVM, it knows what a vector of int is. It's not a vector of object or anything else. So people like that, and they like the idea that you can still write imperative code with Scala. So it's not that of a foreign land for them to get into. And then you just, while the project is running, you're just pushing them towards, let's say, more FP-style programming. So with that in mind, I really love Scala. With that in mind that you can, let's say, transition, slowly transition normal Java developers into it and then push them towards the, let's say, proper way to write programs. What were some of the things that were easier there and then some of the things that were more tricky? From what I've seen, Scala has an immutable collection set, but you can still use Java's collection set, which are immutable. And then using the higher level of those abstractions of the map filter reduce, if you're doing this before, you get, what, Java 7, Java 8, which started to pull that stuff in a little bit more. What were some of the things that people latched onto quickly in the going from a better Java to a worse Haskell when you're helping push the FP of Scala? And what were some of the things that you, that people were sticking on a little bit more? So I would say that those basic concepts were easy to pick on. So all the usual high order functions, people just quickly realize what are the benefits of them and they just start using them because they're intuitive and most people know SQL. So it's not a new concept, it's just a new syntax for something that they kind of already know. The huge problem was essentially Akka. So while Akka has really, really nice ideas behind them, obviously taken from Erlang, I was myself surprised that a company that's called TypeSafe is producing Akka, which is anything but. In essence, it's like Erlang, send anything, and I need to know how to handle any type of message in all my actors, or something can fail. And that was really, really unfortunate and surprising to me. So let's say normal functional programming concepts, really easy to grasp uh, for everybody. Actor models, especially non-typed actor models, are a disaster. I love the idea, but for new people, they're a disaster. I'd be curious, and if you're going with Akka and you're leading towards the FP stuff, did you manage to see, for those who got the actor model through Akka, if that influenced any of the lingering OO side of the Java and Scala there that, that was written more, that where it changed? to be more based off message passing versus a bunch of accessors and getters and setters and things like that on the objects? Or did you manage to avoid that pretty much from the beginning? So I've tried to force one-way communication in the whole system. So no getters and nothing else, nothing similar could have been implemented. In some places, yeah, we kind of had to take the dirtier approach and simulate getting because unfortunately, Akka has a really nice operator that returns you a future of something. And it's kind of like a getter that returns the future. So they even have the API to do two-way communication and simulate getters. I was trying to force people not to use those too much. 
But obviously, as in any software project that is large enough, you can't really implement everything to be really beautiful, like a snowflake or something like that. Everything needs to have some dirtiness to it. So we ended up having those future-based getters in a few places. So how long was this project in Scala, and how long were you doing this before you started to go back into your C++ world? So the project lasted for around four years. Let's say two and a half years were actively developing the project, and the rest was discussions and different stuff. Obviously, while the project was on, I still kept with all my side projects, so C++ was never out of my sight. And then as you're doing C++, even if it's a side project, when you're pulling this back in, because C++ has gone through many, many years of evolution, and from what little I've seen of C++, just looking at it now, it's a pretty much, we will be anything you want to be language at this point. So, because I can be a C with some enhancements, or I can be a nice, strong, typed C++. It just depends on, I guess, where your background is and how you learn C++. As you started seeing C++ evolve, what were some of the things that you... And can you relate this to the timeline of your functional programming? Because the C++ standards evolved and started incorporating more functional programming stuff like Map and Filter Reduce and some of these other kind of... Uh, it wasn't the STL. What's the other library that started to introduce some of this stuff? Uh, the Ranges Library. Maybe. There were a couple, I think, that were like the... This was the playground before we actually pull stuff into mm-hmm. the official language. So there was some of that stuff I saw. So how was your evolution of functional programming in C++? And how did that time to C++'s evolution to include functional programming in it? So there is a strange story there. So you're uh, completely right. C++ is everything that people want it to be. That's not the advised way to use C++. But that's the common way. So you have one group of people that think that C++ is CVID objects or CVID classes. You have another group of people that think that C++ is Java, just that you need to call uh, <laughs> call delete on things that you <laughs> that never really allocated. Uh, so, so because I'm laughing because somebody just entered the screen. So just uh, for the audience, please ignore ignore my laughter at this point in time. So those are the two groups of C++ developers. But C++ was essentially never meant to be a language that any of those groups use. So it's not Java without garbage collection. It's not just C with classes. My main claim is that functional programming, if something is to be called a functional programming language, it needs to have higher order functions. Anything else, purity, pattern matching, etc., many of the functional programming languages don't have them. The only common denominator is the higher order function. And C++ had higher order functions since the first version that was standardized in C++ 98. So STL all the algorithms in STL accept functions as their arguments for comparisons and stuff. And there are even some functions in STL that return new functions, like stdbind, which is used for partial application. So if you look at C++ from that point, C++ has always been a functional programming language. 
Obviously, nobody believes me when I say this, but I still claim it to this day. It's just that people didn't see that much value in it and they didn't use it enough. Fortunately, in the recent years, there have been quite many changes in the C++ ecosystem. So just even discarding all the changes in the language itself, the C++ community grew a lot and evolved a lot. Nowadays, you can't even see a single OP talk at the C++ conference. If somebody tries to submit something OP related, people think, oh, this person is really brave <laughs> because nobody's going to listen to that. So C++ has moved a lot towards the standard algorithms, which, as I said, always had higher order functions in them. And the standard, as you mentioned, began moving towards, let's say, proper ways to do filtering maps and stuff. So we've always had std transform, which is kind of like map. We always had remove if, copy if, which are kind of like filter, etc. The problem with them was that they are not easily composed in the way that functional programming languages allow you to compose stuff. It was possible to compose them in, let's say, non-FP ways but not in the way that, let's say, people do it in Haskell. I can see that because I have also heard other people refer to original C as a functional programming language because everything's just pointers. So if you just decide you want to pass a pointer to a function, you can figure out where that function pointer is and do functional programming in flat-out C, although that will probably get you slapped by a bunch of C programmers if you're doing pure C. But there are times when people have done it, so... Seeing that definition of C++ being a functional programming language doesn't surprise me. I was just on a user group where Eric Norman was giving a presentation, and I asked him, what do you see as the foundations of something for it to be a functional programming language? He said, lexical scoping, so you can essentially have some sort of closure over variables and not have global variables mm -hmm. over everything, and first-class functions, functions you can pass around. And yeah. yeah, when you use that definition, Almost every language out there now can be considered a functional programming language, even if that's not the predominant style. So it's interesting to see, though, because from the outside of the C++ community, there's a lot of, hey, we need speed, so just write something in C or C++, because there's a lot of people who just throw those all together because it's fast. Mm -hmm. And is it C or is it C++? It doesn't, I, it doesn't matter. It's all the same thing kind of thing. And it, and it can be written however you want. So it's interesting to get the take from someone who's actually in the C++ community and active in there to see what that community is thinking of all these topics versus someone who's just like, oh, yeah, I I picked up some C or I picked up some C++ and I've just done some programs in it or we needed to write some of this stuff. So as it's evolved and you mentioned the community is evolving, where did that evolution fall alongside your evolution when you were doing Haskell and learning Haskell and taking these stuff back into your projects in C++. Were you a bit earlier than some of these other libraries in the community's evolution, or were you right there? Like, Where was the timing with that as you were writing some of the stuff and seeing the lessons from Haskell and applying them back into C++? I would say that there were many people that were thinking the same thing as I did at the same time as I did. But I think that they weren't brave enough to start talking with other people about it. So let's say the source of it all 
I'm assuming that a lot of people that I know were doing the same things that I did. It's just that, let's say, five years later, those things started appearing at conferences. So one of my first completely misguided efforts to push functional programming in C++ in the C++ world, I was at a conference dedicated to one of the frameworks for C++ called Qt, one of the really, really popular ones. And I was talking about simulating some asynchronous programming with monads and stuff. And absolutely nobody in the audience understood what I was talking about. They all thought that it was really cool because it made asynchronous programming really nice and easy. And I showed a lot of advanced C++ techniques back then. But people were like, okay, this is a really nice talk. I'm never going to use any of, of this. And I don't understand what you were talking about. But it's it's a really nice talk. And years later, people started approaching me. Oh, I was at your talk back then. And now I do understand why this is so awesome. So it's really difficult to push something like that into a community that is, as we said, traditionally C with classes or Java without a garbage collection. And many people didn't want to do it because they thought they're going to be shunned. Fortunately enough, I wasn't the part of the community back then, so I didn't, I wasn't scared in advance. So I, I was able to talk about something like that. And I think that the main turnaround point for the community was a talk by Sean Parent. It was called C++ Seasoning, where he's one of the chief people in Adobe. I think he's the top of the Photoshop team. He started talking that whenever he sees a for loop in a code review, he automatically submits deny, <laughs> minus two or something like that. Because no raw for loops, just like I would say no raw recursion in Haskell if you can do something with fold or anything else. And his whole talk was just about standard algorithms and how they can be applied to various different situations. And after that, let's say the not so famous names realized, okay, this is something that we can talk about. <laughs> and then you just started getting all the different FP talks at conferences, including error handling with optionals and STD expected, which is kind of something that looks like either monad and stuff. So you just got so many monad-based talks, functional programming-based talks in, at C++ conferences. And nowadays, as I said, you don't have any OOP talks anymore. So at what point did you start to get the inkling that maybe I need to write a book about the functional programming topics and how it applies to C++. What was the start for that book? Was there a talk that started that inkling? Was there something else that was nagging you? Or was it just one of those you were early enough in the community that you're like, nobody's talking about this. I'm just going to put this out there. So hopefully we can get people talking about this. What was the impetus for the book? It wasn't me, to be honest. So at each conference, after all the FP talks, a bunch of us just got together and we were talking about it would be so awesome if somebody wrote a FP in C++ book. And obviously nobody wanted to do it. We just wanted to have material to read about FP in C++. And at some point, Manning approached me, the title acquisitional editor or something like that. And they asked me, hmm, do you want to write a book about functional programming in C++? 
And my initial reaction was, no, I want somebody else to do it. But then I realized, okay, everybody's going to, to say the same thing. So I said, well, why not? And honestly, thanks to Manning, that book exists. I wouldn't even dream of writing a book if somebody didn't ask me, do you want to? <laughs> because it's something that needed to exist. But as I said, I would much rather read a book from somebody else than actually pour my own thoughts onto the paper. Can you give everybody a high-level view of that book? Is that a book that's kind of talking about like, hey, we're going to teach functional programming and we're going to teach it uh, using C++? Or is it say, hey, you're a C++ programmer. I'm going to try and get you into functional programming. Is it somewhere in between? What kind of stuff does it target for the audience? And when you wrote it, what was some of the stuff you were hoping people would really take out of it? So my main idea was to have a book for C++ developers that can improve their code. So not a book about functional programming with C++ syntax, but things that they can use in the real world. And I guess one of the best compliments that I got was there is one guy, again, he has his, his podcast and he's a famous person in, in the C++ world. And he said, well, I read a book and I don't see what functional programming here is. This is just common sense. Because I would say that all the things that I wrote, they're not let's force Haskell onto C++ or anything like that. It's just a good way to write C++ code. We kind of talked about the high level, but what are some of the things that make C++ either tricky to do functional programming in or really nice to do functional programming in? You mentioned that some of the map filter reduces are starting to get in there more. You've always had functions as first class citizens, but and immutability is not necessary to be functional because you can get around that. What are some of the things that you found that C++ really fits well with when you're trying to take a good, nice functional approach? And what are some of the things that people have to be wary of when they try and take C++ in and make it functional? Aside from being good C++, but like if you're going to take some of these other things, what are some of the things where if you're going to try and do Haskell or you're going to try and do some of these other stuff, then this stuff gets tricky and maybe that's more the advanced functional programming I would say that the main disadvantage of C++ is syntax because the terseness that you can get with other FP languages you can't ever get in C++. You mentioned lambdas. Lambdas in C++ are something that you can dedicate a whole chapter to of a book because C++ allows you to control absolutely anything. So you need to think about whether you're going to catch a variable as a reference or a copy of a variable, etc. Which you don't need to think about in Haskell or other FP languages. So I would say that that's the main downside of C++. But at the same time, it's probably the biggest advantage of C++ because you have the control over everything. So you don't need to have garbage collection. You don't need to have anything. You have the control over everything and you can write safe code if you want to write safe code. So if you don't use a manual memory allocation and deallocation and resource acquisition, etc., then you can write really safe code and have the control over every part of the program, exactly what it's going to do and how it, it is going to do it. That said, the control is a huge problem if you don't know C++ already. If you just are switching from Haskell to C++ and you want to be able to write the same code that you used to write, just forget about it. 
you need to know C++ in order to be able to write functional programming in C++. I'm laughing a little bit in the background because this is just flashbacks to some college courses that I did where I did C++ and then moving to .NET and using C Sharp and VB and then taking another course for a master's program after not having written C++ for a while, we had one of the things and I spent 40 hours debugging a copy constructor issue. So I, I, I'm sniffing at the fact that, yeah, you can't go in when you all of a sudden forget about copy constructors versus like pass by value or pass by reference and copy constructor is like, oh, wait, because the amount of time that you can blow just trying to debug something like that it makes me laugh because I've been there with the pain of not being a real C++ programmer, but doing C++ just enough that and been gone away from it long enough that you forget about that and can picture those nightmares when you're trying to do some of this map filtering use if you don't get your uh, pass-by value or pass-by reference things right. Yeah, and nowadays you also have move constructors apart from copy constructors. So, <laughs> but again, that complexity is, on one hand, it's really bad, but on the other hand, there were some really nice talks about uh, the future of Haskell and adding linear types to, to Haskell. And in C++, we can simulate linear types without any problems with the more construction and more semantics. So the things that I, that are quite problematic, the power that the compiler gives you is sometimes really, really much higher than in any other language. So the same thing that I had in my history, why I started with FP, the possibility of simulating for loops without any support from the compiler. Nowadays, I get that the other way around. The things that in Haskell would need a compiler support, I'm able to do them in C++ without any changes to the language itself. And then C++ has a lore about it for, as you mentioned, you can write unsafe code. Whether or not that's true of how many people write unsafe code and trying to optimize it to the very, very, very smallest point to make it as fast as possible, I don't know that I buy that either. But when you need to do this, it seems functional programming does help you give that bounds across any other language I've played with, where you say, this is the pure stuff, this is the stuff that's easy and straightforward, and we may not need to optimize this. Here's my pure core stuff. And then here's everything else on the other side that's all the actions, all the side effects, all the messy stuff that needs to do optimization, whether it's micro-level optimization or we don't have nice immutable data types, so I've got to do a deep copy everywhere. And you have that boundary. How does that look like in C++ when you can get these confusions of a Lambda where you have all these options? Is there a nice, easy way to default that says, look, this stuff is just always pure. We can give some of the stuff a nice view and make a nice simple lambda that is always copy and everything else to be able to keep the optimization stuff and all the options that you can do that you said. Everything that gives you power is also the part that can make it tricky. Does C++ give you the nice way to be able to take advantage of some of those same defaults you want when you write a lambda or you do some of this other stuff as well? So I would say that the main thing that C++ misses is the same defaults. So in essence, apart from lambdas, most of the time, all the defaults in C++ should be avoided. 
So if you want to declare a variable, the default is a mutable variable instead of a const. And quite a few things are similar. The only thing that is a little bit different is a lambda. Lambda is by default const, and if you want it mutable, then you need to explicitly specify. But apart from that, by default, you can write safe C++, not in the sense of purity and immutability, but in the sense of memory safety and resource safety. So if you just don't use new, if you don't use deletes, if you just declare variables as vectors and not pointers to something, then you're going to have a really safe language. And most of the time it's going to be quite performant because you're not going to make that many mistakes of copying data that you don't need to copy. But obviously, if you don't even think about copying, if you don't even think about references, then you're going to get screwed. So by default, C++ can be really safe and on the slowish side. If you start thinking about references, then it's going to be safe and really performant. I wouldn't say that you need to go to the unsafe parts of C++ in order to make it fast. In essence, one of the rules of C++ is that all the C++ abstractions that you have need to be something called zero overhead. And that doesn't mean that all the things in C++ don't generate assembly code. It just means that all the features of C++ need to be as efficient as if you implemented them in C all manually. With regards to the purity and immutable data structures, they are not the, a part of the standard, but there is a really nice library called Emer, which implements the bitmap vector trees, well, vectors through bitmap vector trees, which provide a really efficient implementation of immutable vectors and some other data structures. And from what I've seen, they are comparable to the data structures that Clojure uses and are much more performant because, again, no garbage collection and similar things. So I would say if you wanted to write safe, really pure FPC++, you're going to encounter some hurdles. But there are quite a few language features and outside libraries that can help you with it. And I'm not sure that I answered your question, but I answered whatever I wanted to answer. <laughs> I think you got close. I could just see some of that stuff helping to delineate between the safety and the unsafety, which you get an FP anyway, but you've just got that extra dimension in C++ where you have a, yeah, a different side of unsafety, which is not just like actions and mutability. You have the, oh, okay, now we got to do main, memory management and everything else, but it doesn't sound like that yeah. causes that much change in your pure side because you still have that nice boundary of Here's everything that's unsafe. And my pure stuff, I'm still able to do that without having to worry about, am I sneaking something unsafe here in any way? Yeah, yeah. We're getting close to time. There's a couple more questions. With the book, you say it's targeted at C++ programmers, and your best compliment was that this isn't really a functional programming book. This is like just how to write good C++. For anybody who's not in that C++ camp, and they're looking through your book. What would be some of the things you'd want to show to them or want them to know about and say, if they're going to look at a few things in the book, that would either help to spell C++ this or show just shining examples of how C++ can do functional programming. Is there, are there any topics there that would just say, 
if you're going to go pick it up, chapter topics ABC or whatever might be good examples of just C++ and the power of C++ that you can do nowadays for anybody who hasn't looked at it. Or this is just what really good stuff for C++ is and his why C++ and functional programming make an awesome pair. Are there any specific topics there that you'd call out? Not really specific topics, but let's say it like this. If you don't care about C++, but you don't understand some of the functional programming idioms, I would say that you can go through the book and just skip all the C++ code. I've had a couple of people that are interested in functional programming that don't really speak C++, some students, and they read the book and said, well, the concepts are understandable. I don't understand a line of the code that you wrote. But the concepts, the way that I explained monads, that I explained reactive streams and stuff, that they were quite easy to read and quite easy to understand. I wouldn't recommend the book as a way to learn functional programming from scratch and the only resource for learning functional programming. But as an alternative way, because we all know that there are dozens and thousands of monad tutorials. This is yet another <laughs> tutorial, at, at least a part of this book. And I hope that this tutorial of monads is something that can help people that already read all the thousands of the other ones understand monads a little bit better. But again, like all monad tutorials, I claim that mine works and none of the others do. So I think that I try to provide a little bit of a different view of Ramonads than the usual tutorials on the internet are. Because a lot of the tutorials that I've seen talk mostly about IOMonad, and the IOMonad is the holy grail of each and every tutorial. And in C++, it just, it would be a useless thing to write about because we have normal IO. We don't need monads for it. So I needed to market monads in a different manner than just as something to achieve impurity in a pure language. So from that point of view, I would say this book would be a nice read even for people that are not interested in C++, even if it's not really aimed at them. And then part of me wants to ask it, part of me doesn't. So if you don't feel comfortable or just want to punt on the question, I understand, is as a C++ programmer, there is a lot of talk about Rust and Rust to be replacing C and C++ in a lot of cases. And they say they've taken a lot of inspiration from Haskell. When you're in the C++ camp, aside from putting your C++ out of the job and just only doing maintenance, which as we've seen in the US from some of this quarantine stuff, COBOL programmers yeah, have been making a comeback. But uh, aside from just any of that, where is the comparison to, as someone who does C++ and is active in that community, where does the feeling of Rust come through? Is that something that's where will take ideas from Rust and fold them back in? Is there a play with Rust? So I'm kind of curious as to someone who's the perspective of that Rust is trying to displace the programs they write. What is your view on where Rust is fitting and the need for Rust in that sense at a high level? If you're comfortable answering that. I'm going to try to answer it, but still be politically correct. So there have been many languages in the history that try to replace C and C++, and still C and C++ are one of the top three to top five languages used in the world. Rust is a nice attempt at the same, 
but I wouldn't say that it's a better attempt than, for example, D and some of the previous languages that still kind of failed. They're beautiful languages, they're used in their parts of the world, but I'm not seeing Rust becoming anything more than that. In essence, Mozilla is replacing big chunks of Firefox with Rust, and that's the only serious Rust project that I've seen. The beautiful thing is that they have really strict rules about memory and stuff. The problem that I see is similar to the problems that I've seen with some parts of the Haskell environment, is that all the serious projects use the unsafe features of language. Because you just have to. Because I was teaching Haskell at the university, and obviously I wanted to show the students that you can use Haskell and create a game with just pure functions. And then we dived into the code of Gloss Library, and obviously you have perform unsafe I.O. And then I needed to explain to the students why it's it's not bad that in this case it's completely, completely good to use unsafe I.O. And Rust is kind of the same. You have really nice guards, and then you need to put them down in order to do anything real world. So we'll see what happens with Rust. I'm not really fond of the community behind it. I love the ideas from the language. I'm not sure whether it will become a serious contender to the top five languages that we have today. I ask this because Rust sounds interesting, and the safety aspect is always nice, especially when you hear about a lot of these vulnerabilities and days zero-day stuff, on mm-hmm. memory pointers and stuff. I'm like, yeah. People ask me, it's like, so you think Rust is going to, or Go or whatever is going to, I'm like, there's so much C and C++ out there. I don't think you're ever going to unseat C++. Because from what I can tell and what I've seen, you can take an old C program and you can make that conversion to C++ a lot easier than if you would have had to write it in any other language, Go or Rust or anything else. But you're probably going to just move it to C++ and it'll take forever to seat that. Would I love to be wrong? Given some of the security vulnerabilities we have and some of this core stuff, sure, I'd love to be wrong and say, let's get some of this typed and we can at least unseat C with completely unsafe. With unseating C, I would be completely content with. The problem with rewriting C stuff or porting to C++ is that it doesn't end up being C++. It's just C code that is compiled with a C++ compiler. So it's still unsafe, etc. C++ can really be a safe language if people used it in a normal way and not write assembly inside of C++ if they didn't use malloc, if they didn't use new and stuff. C++ would be a perfectly safe and efficient language. Unfortunately, people mostly don't do that. So we have memory leaks in Chrome, Firefox, we have security issues and everything else. Is there anything from Rust or any of these Go or anything else, that even Haskell, that say, hey, look, we can be close and we've got a good compiler and we can be close, if not somewhat faster than some C programs. I don't know how, how much faster you get depending on what kind of stuff you write, whether it's C or C++. But if they could say, we're in the same ballpark of performance and speed, what are some of the things that you would love to see the C++ community adopt and have fully baked into that language 
and some future version based off Haskell or Rust or some of these other things that you're seeing that that are trying to quote unquote unseat C++ and C. Honestly, I'm not sure. I would love to see Haskell-like syntax for C++. So I have nothing against curly braces and stuff. I just don't like the fact that a lot of C++ things require a lot more typing than they necessarily would need to if C++ was created today. So if there was a new language that was meant to have the same semantics and to work like C++ just without the backwards compatibility, and somebody decided to recreate the syntax of C++ even with curly braces, semicolons, and everything else, I would love to see a simplified syntax for C++. And when features are considered, I would love... Again, it's it's mostly syntactical. So C++ has a template system which can be used for compile time programming. And you can do whatever you want with types during the compilation phase. The problem is that the syntax to do that is abysmal because it was an accident from they wanted to make generic collections and they made the system so powerful that some guy early on decided to write a program that generates prime numbers during the compilation phase as warnings by the compiler. So, and then you created a Turing complete language, which is an accident. And then you need to write syntax for that accident to force it to do something. And that's the biggest hurdle that people have in C++. I would love, uh, I think that the language Rocket or something like that, uh, it's called. It has an amazing AST rewriting system and everything else. I would love to see something like that in C++ so that you don't need to do the hacks for compile time programming that you can just write normal code. And since we're wrapping up on time, before we get to where people can find you and follow along with what you're doing, is there anything else that's exciting you about C++ specifically or any other things in functional programming that you see developing that's getting you excited, interested in learning more, or just want to dig more into that's on your radar, either C++ specific or just functional programming in general that's got you curious and wanting to find out more? Recently, I've been quite interested in new data structures, mainly because of when I saw Clojure's vector and how it was implemented. After that, I realized, okay, all the things that, that I've learned at university about data structures, they're not set in stone, that there is still research working on those. And it's completely relevant to any particular language. I would just love to see more amazing ideas like the bitmap vector trees. Sounds good. I'll definitely have to check those out because I think that's the first I've heard of bitmap vector trees as opposed to some of the other stuff where they use immutable types. This is a structure that has a couple of different names. So one group of people call, calls it like this. Uh, the original uh, paper explaining the structure was, I think they called them ideal hash trees or something like that. In essence, the point is that they're implementing vectors as, so not tree as the normal tree, but T-R-E-E, so a prefix tree where the key is just used bit by bit to traverse the tree. And then they have the performance of a normal, let's say, algorithmic performance, almost the same as the standard vector from C++, just with immutable collections. And it's amazing how simple the idea is, 
and that nobody thought of it until a couple of years ago, which is insane. I'll definitely have to check that out as I put the show notes together and find a reference to it. I'm sure I'll have to take a take a bookmark and deep dive that at some point soon. Mm-hmm. As I get the reference to share that with everybody else, I'll, I'm sure I'll have to dig into that. So is there anything else you want to plug? Virtual appearances? I know we're, I know most of the world at this point is still locked in their houses and not going anywhere. Or any other projects you want to, either your projects or somebody else's projects you think are interesting that you want to plug? Or just any other general recommendations you want to make to the audience while you got them? Well, general recommendations, stay safe. <laughs> While you're staying safe, if you're bored, you can investigate uh, the beautiful world of open source and free software. And obviously, the project that I work on, you can find on on my blog, which I'm assuming you're going to post the link to. Yeah, do you want to share where people can follow you, your blog, your any social media places for people to track down, keep up, GitHub, anything else you want to share? So I have a Twitter account. Ivan underscore C-U-K-A-C, if I remember correctly. And obviously my blog, uh, co. Sounds good. I'll make sure to get those in the links and get references to your books as well on the site and in the show notes so people can go find that as well for Manning. And we'll just make sure we'll get everything down so people can go back to the show notes if they're not at the computer, which might be rare this time when they're listening to this stuff. Yeah. But... uh if anybody's coming back, they can come back or share the links that we talked about. So I'll get everything added to the show notes so people can come back and find out more and share it and everything else. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. Once again, thank you, Yvonne, for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking to you and finding more about C++ and the world of functional programming. And I will probably have to get more guests on. And if you have any recommendations for people to talk to, I'd love to hear them at some point. because. I think it's one of those languages that probably doesn't get enough attention in the functional programming mm-hmm. world to let people know that it is out there and help spread that word, that it doesn't have to be the complete wild west of whatever you want it to be. There are people out there doing with purity and the ease of reasoning about because, hey, this stuff doesn't change. And it's not just like, oh, I've got this pointer and did something change something underneath me at any point in the C++ lifecycle that you might have had from your old college days of just doing bad C++ just to get you something familiar with it. So it was a pleasure talking with you and finding about how things are actually being used with C++ in the real world and functional programming. So thank you for taking your time to join me today. Thank you for the invite. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.